Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a lovely week. Today I am really excited to be joined by Liam Goff, who is the drummer for the Teskey Brothers, who are an Australian band. I think I always get wary of describing genres of bands, but I think you described them as kind of Motown-inspired Americana, very solely and very, very sort of 60s-influenced. Um, and the way that they approach recording and the way that they approach uh, just the general attitude of the band is heavily analogue-inspired. And I came across Liam through Instagram, he actually messaged me to to say he was enjoying the podcast and I, I checked him out and I realised he was the drummer for the Teskey Brothers and I've been a big fan of them for quite a while. And um, it turns out he's got a really tidy uh, analogue setup at his house in Australia. And uh, so I was really keen to speak to him and especially as a, a fellow drummer, thought it'd be interesting to sort of geek out about both of our experiences. Um, I, I mean, he has slightly more experience recording to... Uh, directly to analog than I do um, but I, I thought it'd be interesting to to talk about those experiences and the way that we approach remote working and um, so this is a really fascinating conversation I think it was really interesting to speak to him and he's, he's such a lovely guy and uh, they've that band is incredible I would urge you to go and listen to them you know may not pause the uh, <laughs> pause this and go listen to them right away but go and check them out it's the Teskey Brothers T-E-S-K-E-Y um, really great soul inspired band um, so anyway we'll just dive right in here we go Liam Goff of the Teskey Brothers it would be interesting for for us to start with uh, talking about the the Teskey Brothers and sort of how that band and how you describe that band and if anybody listening um, hasn't heard them, that's how I know of you. And how would you describe the the sound of that band and uh, and sort of the way it operates? Um, I think it's a bit of an amalgamation of the four of us, our sort of tastes in music and what we grew up listening to. Um, so it's it's a real mix, but I mean, a lot of people, I don't know, people say that Josh's voice is sort of something uh, like Otis Redding's voice a little bit. Um, but I think it's just a reflection of all of the blues, R&B, soul, rock and roll, psychedelic music that we grew up listening to from the 60s and early 70s, really. It's definitely got, you can hear some drilling going <laughs> on outside my window, Um yeah, it's uh, it's definitely got that kind of exactly what you've described, like a, a, a Motowny '60s raw vibe about it. But it's um, the production of it is obviously sounds it, it cuts it in the modern day, but it's definitely got that. I can't even I don't know how you'd even describe it. It's got almost a live feel about it. Um, I'm interested in talking about the sort of your newest album, um, Run Home Slow, specifically, just because that's the one I know the best, but. Was it in terms of recording? Were you recording live in a room together to get that sound? A lot of it we were. We sort of, um, from pre-production, the four of us were getting in a room in um, the home studio at Sam's place and we were working on the songs with the idea of recording them live. 
um, completely as much as we could. Um, but when push came to shove um, uh, and uh, Paul Butler showed up in Australia, he'd flown in, we had him for three weeks, he was sort of like, oh, I don't know if you guys are ready to, to fully record live. We've been touring flat out. So we hadn't really had the preparation to really resolve the tracks in the way that um, he, th he thought uh, needed to be done. And I think we agreed with him. So a lot of the album was recorded partially live, maybe rhythm section and then lead guitar and lead vocal were cut over the top. Um, but there's definitely live elements in there. I think majority of the tracks, it's at least uh, bass and drums uh, being recorded live to track together. Um, and most songs without a metronome as well. So there's there's movement in there. And yeah, it's definitely a live feel that we like to maintain. I think that's record. an important one, the, the without a metronome. <laughs> that, you know, that's a big one, isn't it? That definitely uh, will help whether, you know, whether the, the, the sort of tempo changes or adjustments are noticeable or not is another thing, but it definitely adds to the feel of it. I mean, did you... Uh, I, I've done a lot of that and I, I think it works great and I don't think do, do you feel pressure as a as a drummer to, to record like that or are you it's almost a quite an exposing way of doing it because you know there's that classic Stones track where Charlie Watts speeds up enormously <laughs> through the whole track I can't remember what it is off the top of my head now my my mind goes blank during these conversations <laughs> um yeah it was talked about the other day uh someone was talking about it the other day after the passing of yeah. uh, Charlie Watts um, I, I can sing it. It's the one it, that's... It's, got, um, it's that sort of funky sort of cowbelly beat at the beginning. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah, but it, it definitely has a lot of movement in it and it's, um, it's a big part of the song. Um, and the music that we grew up listening to has a lot of push and pull in it and, you know, it. I tried to... It was tried to... People tried to beat it out of me when I was younger in school when I was having lessons and, you know, playing to metronomes and you couldn't, the, the tempo wasn't allowed to fluctuate. So that was a, a hard thing to navigate with, um, particularly Josh and Sam in the band. Brendan, the bass player, I'd played in a funk band during high school and then towards the end of high school uh, I met Josh and Sam and, yeah, they wanted the music to sort of move and I was like, no, 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 it's, that's, you're not a good musician if, if the tempo is fluctuating, but then, um, you know, if it's intentional um, or if it's a happy accident, then then it's it's good. And so we try and find that happy medium between things feeling good and, uh, and sounding good and, yeah, sounding like a band that can't hold time. This is a, a, a conversation I seem to have once in a while, and it, it's I think it's an important one. So when, you know, when... There's, there's, this is going to sound pretentious, but there's definitely beauty and imperfection. That's something I learned quite a lot when I was sort of in uh, coming up in original in original bands and in working with producers who are a lot more experienced than us. They're encouraging us to to uh, let mistakes run through because that's kind of as human beings this is the way I understand it. We attempt to sort of fix those mistakes um, mentally. And we like that, whereas if something's perfect, there's nothing for our brain to fix. So we kind of switch off from it quite quickly. And one of the things that I think is lends itself to that is is tempo. And like we we let, uh, you know, the Beatles records, just because obviously I know them well, but they're full of out-of-tune vocals and out-of-tune guitars. 
if if uh, tuning is a, an issue, then why can't tempo be be in that box too? And you know, Ringo speeds up and slows down all the time, and he's not doing it because he's not a good drummer. He's doing it because that's what the song needs. Um, you know, a good example I always use is "I Feel Fine," where it one you know there's two real distinct sections in that song, and one section speeds up massively and one slows down massively. It's just what the song needs. Why why would he not do it? You know, he's he's playing. He is playing for the song, and and I think that that's a as a as a drummer. It sounds like I'd be interested to know. Were you trained? Uh, you sound quite musically trained. <laughs> I can hear some jazz in your playing. Uh, I I wish I was. Uh, I think I, I wanted to be a jazz drummer, but my my teacher through high school and when I was in uni, um, I think he knew I wouldn't be a jazz player. But he was he was did his best to teach me jazz, <laughs> um, which definitely helped. But I'm not a jazz drummer. Well, I can hear it in your playing for sure, and and I think that it's as you've just said, it's really difficult when you've been had it sort of beaten into you for years and years that your job is to hold time really solidly, and then suddenly you realise that that's not that important, and push and pull is fine. It's difficult to unlearn it. Well, I mean, look at orchestral music. You know, the conductor's leading uh, all these time fluctuations, and the amount of emotion and feeling in that music is is huge. So, I, I mean, I guess. You know, when drum machines came in and the world wanted to go digital through the, you know, late 70s, 80s, 90s, it, you had to compete with drum machines and then eventually we came, well, I mean, people are still using drum machines, but there's a reason why, you know, you and I are, are recording drums and trying to replicate sounds from the 60s and 70s because there's a human element in there and um, it's perfectly imperfect and, you know, um, over polishing things potentially takes away the thing that was unique about it. Um, I like to think of it as like uh, painting or drawing. You know, um, my favorite painter is John Singer Sargent, and you get you stand back from one of his um, paintings, and it, it it's amazing. It's full of life and it's full of color, and it looks like a photograph in a sense. But then you get up close to it, and there's thick brush strokes, and it's all painterly and beautiful, and you wouldn't get that from a photograph. So, you know, if you want a photograph, take a photograph, but there's no point drawing or painting something and then trying to over-perfect it until it has, you know, the resolution of a photograph or something. So that's sort of something I try to keep in my mind when we're making music and the temptation to try and fix things creeps in. That's, a, that's such a great way of putting it. I've never quite thought about it like that, but I think that's exactly right. Um so I, I, I'm interested to know what Paul Butler was like to work with. I'll just uh, I sort of preface this. So Paul Butler, I know of him through, uh, he worked on Michael Kiwanuka's first record, which is, like, when I heard that, that was just game-changing. Like, it, that record is so raw and so exciting as a, yeah, it was one of those rare moments where you kind of listen to something and you just think, "Wow, I, I do, I don't know what that was." And I—that's how I know of of Paul Butler's stuff. And then we kind of linked up a little bit about him, and I'm interested to know what your experiences working with him are like because he sounds like a really interesting guy to work with. He's amazing. He's very creative. But uh, it was the Michael Kiwanuka album that uh, that sold um, sold him to us as producer because we spoke to a lot of producers but we really gelled with him and I think we only had two uh, Skype calls with him before we we signed up with him to produce and um, he flew into Australia. We had him for three weeks uh, leading up to Christmas 
And, you know, we had grand plans to get the album basically finished and strings and horns and everything tracked in these three weeks. Um, but, of course, uh, working in an analogue manner, which is the way we chose to do it. The first, he, he literally arrived one afternoon and we uh, switched the tape machine on. And he'd been told that uh, the Studer A800 was completely manically, uh, mechanically ready to roll like a really A-grade machine, switched it on and smoke literally started pouring out of the machine. Oh, and he walks man. out of the room and, and calls our manager and he says, oh, Jeremy, um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is going to work. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he was a real problem solver and uh, he's an extremely creative guy. I don't know if people are familiar with... Um, his work as a musician as well. Um, is it the bees? Was that his? Um, the project? I don't know. I'm not sure. No, I don't. I, I don't know too much about his history. Yeah, check out his band, the bees. Um, uh, it's very creative, sort of '60s psychedelic kind of inspired stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I just say that he has a, a passion for creativity, and you know, his role as a producer. We'd done a lot of production ourselves. We'd recorded demos that um by ourselves in our studio that the label was already really happy with and you know we start we ended up doing a bit of chasing our tail trying to get that demoitis uh out of our system trying to recapture the magic of there being no pressure because we're just doing pre-production ourselves um so he was really into drawing the best performances out of us um and trying weird and wonderful things um so yeah so how how did that how did that go? What did what were the some of the things that you? I can picture. I mean, you guys, from what I've seen, uh, you guys have all got quite tidy home studio setups. So how did you? Uh, you know, how do you go about trying to recapture <laughs> recapture the magic? <laughs> um, well, so yeah, it's actually Sam, um, the lead guitarist. He built up a studio in his old family home underneath, and he turned his bedroom into a, a control tracking room and eventually built out another room, which was a separate tracking room. So that's the studio we've recorded most of our stuff in with the Studer 800 uh, 24-track, 2-inch machine. Um, and that album was recorded through a Tax Scorpion desk that was noisy and buzzy and had all sorts of problems. Um, and the Stude 800, we were lucky if we had, you know, 16 channels working at any one time, um, you know, having to switch in and out power supplies so that we could record on, you know, um, yeah, 9 to 16 and then switch them out. And, um, yeah, but Paul Butler was all over it. Um, but, yeah, most of the stuff is recorded in in, in that studio. Um so, yeah, we've done pre-production there and I guess we sort of have our habits the way we'll go about things and Paul would step in and modify those habits and question, hey, well, why are you doing it like that? Maybe we should try it like this rather than us just defaulting to what we know and what we've done in the past because um, we uh, did our own first album we released um, Half Mile Harvest by ourselves essentially. Brendan, the bass player, uh, played a major more major role in producing it and Sam engineered it um but yeah so having Paul Butler step in was was a welcome change and he definitely lifted our game I think was it a challenge sort of relinquishing control so in the sense that he's pushing your habits how did that feel did you guys I mean I'm sure you're all really lovely but it must have been challenging to have someone come in and question what you're doing yeah definitely I, I mean 
there was a lot of constraints on on the three weeks of tracking uh, that we had him for. Uh, a lot of pressure to get it done uh, between touring and 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 time off and things like that. Um, and it's funny if you really want to get deep into this album, uh, Mushroom Records, our label where uh, uh, yeah label we're with um, put. Uh, did a podcast about the recording of this album called 180 Grams. So you can go in there and it actually has interviews from Paul Butler and everyone that worked on the album, um, musicians, things like that. So uh, if you want to hear Paul Butler's voice and, and hear some of the funny stories and uh, learn about some of the tensions and struggles we had, you can also <laughs> have a listen to that podcast. Um, but, yeah, Paul Butler was, I think in a lot of ways, was kind of like our guru psychologist. He was able to read the room and when tensions were, were rising, when people, someone was getting tired, he'd sort of say, oh, it's, it's go, go grab a cup of tea or have a beer or, you know, take the night off um, because the temptation was just to work from 9 a.m. till, you know, 4 a.m. If, if, if we were given the opportunity. So, um, yeah, bless his cotton socks. He was able to get the whole thing together. Um and yeah, he flew back to LA because he was based in LA with uh, two rolls of two-inch tape that we'd cut together with the album, and we waved him off, and we were terrified sending him off with the tapes through the uh, uh, X-ray machines because you know we'd heard lots of stories about tapes being wiped, and yeah, so stressful. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing time. It's a, I mean, the, the album sounds incredible. I'm, I mean, I'm going to link it in all of the the notes so that anyone, you know, that everyone can go and check it out. But uh, it's, uh, it's just got that that sort of, uh, like I said at the beginning, that sort of feel about it. It does feel live. I know you said that only partial bits of it are, but it's got that. There's there's the communication between you guys. Maybe that just all came from the pre-production or. Um, the, just because you've been touring so much, but it definitely feels like there's strong communication. I'm thinking of it specifically from a drum perspective, you know, the reactions of musical reactions that are going on in certain bits. You know, I just this was listening to uh, Paint My Heart before you came on, and that's that stands out to me as uh, what you're playing is, it feels live. It feels like you're all just reacting together in the same space. And, um, yeah, it's whatever he's done <laughs> is magic. <laughs> it's great. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. Also having Paul Butler there to actually engineer, if Sam was playing the head engineer role in the first album, he would often have to either set the controls in the, in the control room and then with the tape rolling walk into the tracking room and then we'd have, I don't know, 18 minutes of tape to, to do as many takes as we could. So with Paul Butler there, he could step out of the engineer uh, role and really focus on lead guitar, um, which enabled us to play more live. And sometimes in the past on the first album, he would be in the control room engineering while he played guitar. <laughs> so, um, But, yeah, Paint My Heart was, was a real wild one because I think on the studio version is like uh, seven or eight minutes, I think. Okay. Um, it's it's a long one. There might have been. A, I can't remember if there was oh, a radio six, edit for the album. Oh, the on the album it's six minutes. Okay, so that's yeah. It got edited down. There was it was longer. <laughs> when we play it live, it goes for about twelve minutes, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, that was all mostly live. There's you know some overdubs in there, but I think we ended up with three good takes of that song in its entirety. And Sam was kind of hell bent on using 
the int- no uh you know the the majority of the song of of like take 2 um but the outro of take 3 and we'd never cut 2 inch tape before with a razor <laughs> and Paul Butler's like yeah we'll do it and we're all sweating bullets we're going we no that's like you know the the stuff of uh legends and and we're yeah. terrified to do that Paul's such a cowboy he pulls out the tape and um you know marks it up and just does it and makes a perfect edit and my god you, you could have heard a pin drop in the room when he was making those cuts <laughs> amazing amazing so it's interesting that that is what you hear on the album is is live recording but there is one splice for the outro so can you hear the splice can you hear it I, I'm, I'm sure i can't um i know it's there so i can't i have i i can't really uh make an unbiased opinion about yeah. whether you can hear it or not. But listeners, have a listen and see whether you can pick where the splice is. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. did you manage that, you know, sort of we grew up in a, this is, I had them, the last last guest I've had on before this, we're, we're doing this interview, um, Andy, we were talking about the fact that we all kind of grew up in a in a digital world, essentially. You know, the first recording experiences I had were all digital and I've kind of, learning about the the beauty of analog as i you know as i sort of explore all this world a bit more how did you guys deal with um or approach that sort of thing of you know we've got three takes here i mean were you analyzing every single take or were you um sort of coming to an agreement between you that maybe that wasn't your best drum take but it was a best bass take so we're going to go with that one and you're going to um, you're going to re- sort of say, okay, that's cool. I'm happy for that to slip through. I mean, obviously the mistakes are not going to be ginormous, but you're going to feel that that perhaps you 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 favour a different one over another. Coming from sort of a growing up in a, in a digital world, how did you uh, how did you sort of come to terms with sort of having limitations like that? Yeah, we have to be try and be democratic and also um, express our feelings. <laughs> so the, the four of us in the in the con, uh, the control room when we're listening back to something like that, we'll go through and I guess the first thing is like listen out for deal breakers. If there's something that I'm not going to be able to live with on, on being released, you have to speak up and say there's no way that take six can be used in my opinion or this part of take six or whatnot. And, yeah, we just have to talk it out and um be flexible you know and those some of those deal breakers the guys in the band listening back they'll say well that's my favorite bit or i like that that little bit of imperfection and yeah we just sort of have to come to an agreement and if someone feels really really passionate about keeping or you know deleting something um we we let it happen and once it's deleted it's it's gone on tape you know so <laughs> yeah, well yeah <laughs> um, we've kind of gotten used to that we've kind of gotten used to oh, we've only got two channels for for vocals so um once we've got two good vocal takes it's like we'll pick 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 a channel or we have we bounce between and um you know and comp together a vocal track but um the limitations with working analog like that i think um, have been really good for us because we can it, it just taught us to commit we just have to commit and go with it and if it's good it's good if it's not it's not you know you can you can uh you can't polish a turd but you can roll it in glitter <laughs> well yeah and, <laughs> and when you're working with analog i feel like there isn't that much glitter you can't just keep 
piling on plugins and and messing with the sound. It's got to, you've got to get have a good good sound to begin with and get a good capture and then mixing's you know hopefully a bit easier from that yes. point. Yeah. Has so that that album was released in 2019. Um have you guys been writing through the pandemic? What's um sort of what's coming next? Yeah, so we've been writing ever since then, really, on tour because um, everyone in the band writes. So we've we've all been writing, um, and especially through this COVID break, um, Josh and Sam have each had another another kid, so they've they've taken a bit of time off with that as well. Um, but yeah, we're working on that. We did release a live at the Forum album, uh, which we recorded at the forum uh in melbourne and we actually well we didn't record it we got our friend alex bennett to come in and he actually dragged a one inch uh mci eight track tape machine into kind of like this side of stage compartment it's kind of like a what is it a janitor's closet (laughs) and uh and a chilton a vintage chilton 16 channel desk and so he recorded us across three nights um and so we released that uh a while ago and that did really well um, so yeah, we worked on that and then, uh, we actually did a live recording, which wasn't really that planned with Orchestra Victoria, which is a 40 piece orchestra. Um, and so that's been recorded and it looks like that may be being released as an album, um, in soon as well, oh, but cool. certainly before our next studio album. So yeah, it's pretty crazy to think that we'll have released two live albums, uh, between, the two studio albums. So, I think that that's something that's been lost. I mean, I can't remember uh, bands in the last sort of twenty years releasing live albums, and that's that. I think that just goes to show it sort of plays into the whole story of what you guys are creating. I think mean, there's a. I try. I'm trying to think as I'm talking. There's a. There's an artist in America called Brandy Carlisle. Um, that I, that I absolutely love and she's got a live album out and and she that's probably the only the only live album I've noticed in in recent times that I've taken any notice of maybe and uh, yeah I think that's really cool that you guys uh, see that as a valued part because you know obviously there's going to be I think the way that you're recording in the studio will beca- will sort of produce one set of results but as you say you know songs get extended live and they become more exciting and you can have more players in but then not only that you're getting like tape in to record straight to tape from from your live performances that's cool (laughs) that's very cool well we were told we were kind of mad the labels were like no we're not doing that and (laughs) i think we funded it and then we were like well we'll we'll do it and you see see how see if you like it and then they they ended up liking it but it was interesting because having recorded two studio albums and then toured them for a few years, the songs sort of do develop when you're playing them live. And so we, we wanted to sort of capture what had happened after a year of touring Run Home Slow. Um, so that that's a really interesting reference to hear what we did in the studio versus what we did live after touring the songs for um, a year or so. But, you know, we grew up with these uh, live albums um, uh, that just blew our minds and and i don't know why there isn't more of it happening there's so much life and showmanship and the feeling in the room uh that gets captured in some of these uh things are just absolutely amazing i think that's what draws us to them is just that that live um essence of performance and energy you know and it can all fall to shit pretty quickly (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah 
But it plays into the this sort of, uh, you know, like I said, the way that you guys record in the studio. But there seems to be uh, people coming back round to the the fact that you need to have strong musicianship um, in order to do to to record the way that you guys are recording. You all need to be great at your instruments, and in order to to perform that live. I mean, with with no tracks, and that seems like a stupid thing to say, but every band plays with tracks these days, and it's 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 hard to escape that. And I think that there's so much merit in in just removing yourself from all of that and going, you know, we're just going to play the songs like songs as a band, and um, and it, you know, if you want if you want what a track would bring, you bring a forty piece orchestra in <laughs> with you to do that with you, and um, yeah, I think that that's. That's where that that magic comes from, I and mean, I think maybe that because this sort of as a as a musical world, we're coming back round to the idea of um, of sort of analog in, in inverted commas and and having a sort of that attitude towards playing. Musicianship has to get better. You know, how many times have you heard on you know interviews that I've done on this podcast or other podcasts or other interviews where older musicians say, you know, oh, back in the 60s, we we were all, everyone was so brilliant we couldn't because we couldn't do it again. And I think that's being forced upon people now. Um, and, uh, you know, that goes for you guys and a lot of the the sort of bands in the same category. You know, we were just briefly talking about an, another Australian band called Boy and Bear and they're a great example of it. They're incredible live. And, you know, their their musicianship is second to none. They, you know, they they need to do a live album. I'm sure they've got one. They must have one planned. <laughs> they they absolutely need uh, to. Let's hope because yeah, they're an amazing live band. That's it. And how many? There's it's it seems to me quite rare these days that you go and watch a band that has that energy live. If anything, you go and watch a band, and it's almost like the band expects you to expect a replication of the record. But that's not what we want. <laughs> we we want. We want something raw that's different from the record. And uh, yeah, mm. I, co- I commend, I, I think it's really commendable and admirable that you guys have recognized that and then documented it in these couple of live albums that, that uh, you know, that you're doing. Well, the, you know, the one that's out and the one that's potentially coming. I think that's really cool. It's cool, but I mean, it's not, we don't know anything else. We've never played to a track before. We've never had a click track um, on stage, certainly, sometimes in the studio. Um, so it's, we've been doing this for the last 16, 17 years together, you know, and the first 10 years of it, we, we spent playing in pubs and weddings and parties, you know, um, to people that probably didn't want to hear us play. So, um, yeah, it's all we know how to do. Um, has your experience with the last album influenced how you're going to approach the next album or is that conversations that haven't started yet? Yeah, we've been discussing it a lot and and trying to think about how we want to go about it. And the funny thing is, we're not strictly bound to uh, binding ourselves to recording to tape um, or completely analog. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may do that, but um, I think we could potentially set ourselves the same limitations and rules if we have the right producer and work in the same mentality as in analog, but utilizing digital. Um, you know, a lot of the sound probably comes from the summing. If you record digital and then use analog summing down through a desk or some sort of summing device, um, so no, we're not really sure yet. But um, I mean, I'd love to to do the same concept again. 
with some the same toys or some different toys and um yeah we'll just have to see see what happens cool Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that part one of my conversation with Liam Goff. Um, I have the second part of that conversation coming up next week where we dive into his home studio and talk a little bit more about gear specifically and what he's got going on and how he uses it. Also, his approach to remote working, um, which is really interesting, especially from a from my point of view as a, a drummer doing uh, the same thing, essentially, it's interesting to hear how somebody else does that. Um, so that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to support this podcast by buying a mug, you can do that on my website, All you need is drums.com. There's a link to the shop there. Thank you to everybody who's purchased already. I really appreciate the support. Um, you can also get in contact with me. My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. You can do that uh, with feedback, guest suggestions. Uh, if you're interested in getting in touch about my remote drum services, anything you like, just send me an email. be nice to hear from you. Um, so I just want to say a big thank you to Rory for editing the podcast uh, and to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music and for David Henshaw for the lovely artwork he supplies. Have a great week, and I will see you next Tuesday. Goodbye!